Thank you for tuning in today for our very first podcast from Ithaca College's NAFI chapter. We are your hosts, Raylene Ford and Caitlin Schneider. Good morning. It is a very cold Monday, November 2nd, and today we have Dr. Claus, a member of the music education faculty here at IC. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks for putting on this show. This is very cool. Yeah, we actually got our idea from your work in our wind pedagogy class, and our, we as students really appreciate that, so thank you. Uh, yeah, so to start off, can you just give us some background on how you got to IC? Um, sure. Yeah, it's, I think everyone probably has a, a an interesting route to Ithaca College and, and how they find themselves in teaching in higher ed. I guess the most interesting thing about my journey is that I never, I never aspired to be um, a music professor. I, I, my dream job was teaching middle school band and I have yet to teach middle school band. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how what you think, you know, and as an undergrad, you might all have this idea of where, you know, and what specifically you'd like to teach. And that can, that can change. And I think that's good as, as we evolve. But I guess the short version of my story um, is that I was teaching high school band in Boston, Massachusetts, and was the, the director of a jazz studies program at a performing arts school. Absolutely loved it. That became my new dream job was just, it was, it was really, it seemed like the perfect fit for me. Um, my wife is, uh, is an academic and she applied for a job at Cornell um, probably 10 or 11 years ago at this point, 11 years ago, I guess. So we, I, I, at that point had never thought of teaching at the college level, but she was going to be a professor at Cornell and also doing a postdoc at Penn. So I had these two years where we were gonna be in Philadelphia and I didn't wanna just find a job and then immediately leave. So I decided to get a PhD in music education and thought, you know, at the very least that would give me some more options and I wouldn't have to start a, a program and then immediately leave it. So uh, we, we moved to Philadelphia. I did a, a PhD program at Temple University and then she started at Cornell um, and, and we moved to Ithaca, I guess, uh, yeah, eight years ago at this point. So when we first arrived in Ithaca, I was completing my dissertation research, which was on race and gender bias and, and music evaluation. And I was adjuncting a bit in the jazz studies department. I, I coached some chamber ensembles and taught uh, jazz arranging. And then after a few years, I was working in the public schools in the area and a job opened up at the college and I was fortunate enough to be offered that position. So that was um, about five years ago um, or six, well, six years ago, technically, and then I started the next fall. So uh, yeah, it's just, I, I, it's interesting how, you know, life takes you in, in unexpected places and, and Ithaca was certainly an unexpected place, but I'm, I'm so glad we found it here. And she has, she has tenure now, so we're hoping hoping to stay for good it's really great yeah it's it can be very interesting like the different paths our lives can take that's awesome so um we when you were speaking about your research we did a little bit of research ourselves and we saw you have written about a lot of different topics like music technology popular music pedagogy um so what topic has been the most rewarding to learn about for you yeah um I, it may seem like my research interests are, are varied, but I think they all kind of uh, are centered around one unifying issue of, of understanding students' interests and goals and aspirations and leveraging that to create music education experiences that are relevant, meaningful, and hopefully uh, life, lifelong. So 
when I was teaching in Boston, um, I had just graduated from my undergraduate uh, music education degree, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about teaching band. Stepped into the classroom and immediately found out I knew nothing about teaching music. Um, and well, and that's not not true. That's it's an exaggeration. But um, all of my assumptions and values, I, I began to realize, were just my own. And my goals for my students' learning did not match their goals for what they wanted to learn and, and aspired to be. So, I remember my first rehearsal in Boston. I, I stepped into the room. I hadn't even introduced myself. And my first chair trumpet player raised his hand and said, do we have to be here? And I, I was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, I don't want to work with you. And then almost everybody in the ensemble followed suit. And wow. if anyone has ever been in a program where there was a new director that took over, I mean, you see that time and time again, no matter who the outgoing and incoming people are, it, it doesn't matter. There's It's always um, difficult for that new person to step into that position. And it was my, you know, my first job, I didn't know. Um, so I, I managed to convince everyone, Hey, just hang out until the first concert and then let's talk again. Okay. Um, and it was, it was grueling. Um, it was really difficult. Um, you know, just as a new teacher to figure out you know, the, the, you know, the best ways to teach music and eventually we figured it out. Uh, we, we got to a place where the rehearsals were really working and the concert was phenomenal. Our first concert was so great. The students were so pumped. No one left the program. It was it was a big success. And I came back to rehearsal, you know, in January or whatever it was after our winter concert and said, I think the biggest difference between September and today is that, you know, you got to know me, you know, and there was that trust. And I think that was important. So I'm glad you got to know me. I'm excited about what we can do in the second half of the school year. And I'll never forget my bass player raised her hand and said, no, Mr. Claus, you got to know us. That was the difference. Aww. And it just like blew me away. And I realized, oh, wow, yes, you're so, you're so right. I, you know, I came in with my own agenda, completely ignoring what my students wanted to do. And it took three months or four months for me to learn how my students wanted to learn and what they wanted to learn and to adapt my teaching practices to fit that. So I guess that's a really long story, but a way of, of demonstrating that I came to realize the importance of student voice and students having some say in the curriculum. And that I'm glad that happened early in my career because that shaped my early teaching experiences, that, that shaped how I pursued my doctoral studies and what I wrote my dissertation on, was really interested in, you know, especially cultural assumptions and biases and stereotypes and just um, things that influence the way our classroom interactions are um, that are, that are non-musical. So my students taught me more in those first few months, uh, you know, in Boston public schools than I, I might have learned, um, you know, in four years of college. It was certainly a very different curriculum. But the one thing they taught me was the importance of, of getting to know your students and really understanding what their goals are and adapting your instruction to fit that. So that, that, that took me in places like popular music education and music technology that may not have been inherently what I was interested in, but I came to realize how I could you know, leverage those interests of my students to help them develop skills that would last a lifetime. So um, I, I sometimes joke around, that, you know, like, I write a lot about popular music, but I don't necessarily, you know, I don't enjoy popular music. I mean, I don't have anything against it, but you know, I'm, I was a, I was a jazz snob, you know, all throughout high school and college. That's all I listened to was jazz. And then of course, classical music, but never really, never really enjoyed popular music, but wow, I was, I've been blown away by the opportunities for using popular music in the classroom at engaging students who have never been interested in school music before. And that's, that's really exciting to me. Just most recently when I was in Johnson City, 
Um, I was noted, uh, Johnson City is school district just outside of Binghamton in upstate New York. And uh, we had a great music, we, we've always had a great music program, but I, I noticed that um, there, while I, I think it was about 66% or maybe 70% of the school population was white, over 90% of the school music program was white. So there was a, a disparity between um, the representation of, of students in the, the school district and in the music program. And when we, we launched a modern band program in popular music classes and music technology, we saw a dramatic shift in the demographics of school music in just in that school district. And we didn't lose anyone from the band, band orchestra and choral programs, but we saw so many students coming in that had never been in school music or had left school music for whatever reason that now created a larger school music program that we were able to hire more teachers, offer more classes and serve more students. And like I said, the, the when you looked at the, the racial composition of our school music program, it became much more representative of our school when we offered classes, uh, you, you know, across a broader range of styles that accommodated a wide variety of preferences. And that's, that's not to say that styles of music are necessarily, you know, so racially uh, associated. Of course, you know, John Philip Sousa may not be like, you know, because I'm a white male doesn't mean John Philip Sousa's music speaks to me, but there is something about, you know, like a, the history of racism in our country and the, the styles of music that have been promoted and reproduced in school that definitely fall along racial lines. So I think being aware of that and, and how that affects um, our curriculum is, is important. Definitely. And you, you bring up a great point that, you know, even if it's not something you're interested in, it can really like bring some positive effects to that knowledge. Clearly you've had like a lot of experience now in both public schools and collegiate level teaching. Um, what are like the main differences or similarities between teaching in public schools and teaching in higher education? Yeah, I think that good teaching is good teaching, no matter what the level. Um, whether you're working with elementary school or college, they're all just good teaching practices are, are all about planning and having appropriate assessment models, listening to your students. I think no matter what age level or what content area, once again, involving the students in the development of your curriculum and using their feedback to help inform how you design instruction, either for the next day or for the next year uh, is really critical. I would say, um, the differences between public school teaching and college teaching, there's probably different stressors. I think there's a lot of pressure in K-12 settings to produce great concerts. Um, and of course that exists at the college level too, um, but I'm thinking maybe from the music education standpoint in, in our department, um, there's, there's less of a pressure to be putting on these big public performances um, and more of a pressure. Uh, it, you were evaluated at the college level on not just our teaching, but also our service and our scholarship. Right? So service is going to be, you know, how do we serve the, the college community? What committees are we on? Um, Ithaca College has shared governance. So that means that faculty members like myself have a, a role in shaping the, the development of curriculum, um, leading professional development, all the meetings, hiring, search committees, all of this is really shared by faculty. Um, of course, we have administration, but um, faculty have a, a, a very large part in, in the direction of the school. 
So service is, is a considerable part of teaching in higher education and also service to the field, right? So serving on uh, committees for NISMA at our state level or for NAFME at our national level, making sure that we are contributing to the development of conferences and journal publications and things like that is really important. And then finally, scholarship. So are you writing books? Are you writing articles? Are you guest conducting? Those are really important things that, that you know we're evaluated as faculty um, that may not exist in the public school uh, sphere. So it, it seems like they expect different things from you depending on like where you're working. Yeah, and and both are both are amazing and, and something I I tell a lot of the first year students, I don't know if you've remembered it from our career orientation, is that um, of, of people who aspire to, to teach in higher education, um, very few actually do. So 90%, I think the number was something like 90%, uh, there's 90% of PhD students want to teach in uh, a full-time teaching position and only 3% become full-time professors. So in higher education, what you, what you have in higher ed that you don't have in K-12 schools as much is um, the adjunctification of higher education where you, you may be teaching as an adjunct or contingent faculty. You may be working at several different colleges. And um, I've done that myself. I've worked at uh, Marshville State, um, uh, SUNY Broome, uh, what is it? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, Broome County Community College. Um, I was uh, an adjunct at um, a Mansfield. So that's very common and, and um, it's very rewarding to work with a lot of different schools, but it can also be exhausting to drive, you know, all around the state or the Northeastern region to put together a full-time college teaching schedule. But that is pretty common. And I don't know that everyone knows that, um, that getting a, a full-time college position is, is, is uh, very competitive, right? You know, those are national job searches. So if a job comes up for uh, a director of bands position at a, at a school, you might have over a hundred people from around the world applying for that position. Whereas, you know, if, if you're searching in, in public school positions, there there could be a hundred band positions in a, you know, in a state um, that, that are going to have a very local uh, competition. So it's, it's, it, it is very different. So something probably people should keep in mind if, if that is their aspiration to teach at the college level, um, to know that, you know, working at several different colleges or being willing to move around the country are sacrifices that you need to make in that position. Yeah, that's something I've never thought about before. I didn't know that either. So um, moving into more recent times, um, talking about online learning, before the coronavirus and the normalization of online learning, um, did you ever observe or teach online classes? And if you have, how has online learning, in your opinion, changed since then? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Well, so I think the unique thing about online learning last spring was that no one, no one really saw it coming. <laughs> we weren't, no one was expecting to be teaching online. So um, I don't know that it is, um, it is the best representation of what online learning could be because I, I think that good online learning takes, like I, I mentioned before, any good teaching takes a lot of preparation. Um, so if you want to deliver a meaningful online class, that's going to take a lot, a lot of preparation and design and thoughtful intention about how these online experiences are crafted. Uh, I don't think just doing what you do in person, but on Zoom is, is the best model for online learning. And, and in some cases, you know, some of us had no choice but to do that. Um, but I don't think if you're if you're looking to design an online class. Um, and that is the intention and the goal is I'm going to teach an online class. I, I think a lot more um, 
thought about about like the asynchronous experiences and the content that you design and place online is really important. I, I did take several online classes when I was in Boston. Um, I took classes at Berkeley Music Online and probably for, I don't know, 15 years at least, they've been designing exclusively online curriculum where you can get um, certificate programs. So a lot of people, for example, in sound recording, um, they might do a Pro Tools certification online through Berkeley where you enroll in a class and I was enrolled in, in a class I wasn't in his specific class, but he was Wyclef Jean, who is like this Grammy award-winning producer and rapper was also in this program. So the cool opportunity with online learning is you can be in classes with people around the world that are just doing amazing things in the field that you might not get if everyone has to be in the same town. So I feel like the opportunity for collaborating with, with people um, is, is just incredible through online learning. But again, uh, I think that yeah, the classes that I took were were crafted and designed to be online. So it was a lot more, um, and there's different models, right? It's like a college, we have uh, synchronous Zoom meetings, and then we have asynchronous, maybe people are designing Sakai modules and things like that. Um, so there's no kind of like one approach to online learning, even at Ithaca College. But the online classes I took were largely asynchronous. So you would go online, sign in, and you'd work through modules of material. You'd create projects that you'd send to your professor. Um, and maybe there might be an occasional, you know, synchronous chat session, but the work was was largely um, accomplished, you know, asynchronously. That that helps, especially with different time zones. You know, right? If you're if you're teaching an online class and you have, and I we see this at Ithaca College. I mean, I have a first year student in Alaska. You know, very different time zone wow. than Ithaca. So when you have the synchronous class meeting at 8 a.m. and it's you know 4 a.m. you know in another part um, of the of the world, it's it can be very difficult. Um, if if you know there, are, I don't know, uh, I don't have any students in in um, China right now, for example. But that's you know an even greater time difference. So I think the synchronous sessions. Uh, tend to be difficult for a variety of reasons but um, for me my own experience as an online learner I really enjoyed uh, having really great content online that I could work through and navigate submitting projects and uh, the flexibility of completing work at a, in a time zone that was was uh, convenient and worked for me uh, seemed to be seemed to be a good approach those classes were like designed to be online and you knew that like like for students as well as teachers, like we didn't know we were going to be taking online classes and these classes weren't necessarily designed to be online. Whereas right. for coronavirus, like were specifically created to be online courses. Yeah, the, the, the director of the Center for Faculty Excellence here at Ithaca College um, has a his background in, in design and development. And um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he told me something like when, when online learning um, first became, um, you know, a reality and not not a, a pandemic really reality, but when colleges started doing online learning, they would say it would take roughly 300 hours of planning for one hour of instruction. Wow. So that's just, if you're thinking about, okay, <laughs> um, we're going online next week. Um, obviously we can't spend 300 hours planning one hour of instruction. Mm -hmm. um, I know for me, um, just to use WinPed class as an example, it, it probably would takes me about two or three times more to prepare a week's worth of content online than it would preparing for PowerPoint lectures in class and class activities, right? Um, you know, like 
the podcast <laughs> that takes time to produce and, and the voice thread and Flipgrid, all these asynchronous activities, um, you know, they, they really, they really add up. Uh, so I think that uh, it's, it's, I think online learning can be valuable. Um, I don't think it should ever replace in-person instruction, but I think there are unite unique opportunities with online learning, once again, to collaborate with people around the world that I hope we maintain. I hope the pandemic doesn't leave a bad taste in our mouth about online learning because um, I think 100% online learning is, is not working well. Um, I mean, obviously nobody wanted the situation, um, but I, I hope that, um, I hope that we see what opportunities we were afforded through online instruction and and, and don't just say, hey, we're never gonna do that again, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, is there anything else that you want to say in closing? Oh, no, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of you both for taking on this project and doing a podcast and sharing. And once again, seeing the opportunity of, of our online experience to say, how can we share and disseminate information through other vehicles? And I think, you know, a podcast is a great way to do that. So kudos to both of you and to all the listeners. Uh, don't be afraid to similarly take risks and do something that maybe is outside of your comfort zone or something you wouldn't have done before, because uh, that's how we, you know, that's how we evolve is, is through these innovations and by trying new things. So take risks. Thank you. So um, thank you all for listening in today. Our podcast episodes will be posted on our Instagram and Facebook sites. So stay tuned for more.